The call on the ice stands. We got to go. Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's roll, boys. Come on, let's get going. We are kicking. Here we go. Oh, guys, five minutes each for fighting. Watch the blue. Play the puck. Run to it. After further review, it's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Yeah, baby. Here's your hosts, Todd Lewis and Josh Smith. Okay, gentlemen, play ball. Let's go. All right, guys, let's drop the puck. The first of the NHL All-Star Weekend participants were named this past week. I did not see any officials mentioned, Josh, so I'm guessing that means that they're part of the fan vote. Is that how I read this? <laughs> Could you imagine letting fans vote for the NHL officials for the All-Star game? That would be yes. pretty cool. Um, yes, you're going to have some some folks in very strong camps on who they like, who they know, who they recognize. You know, you've got the West Macaulay fans, but it, it probably would be easier for some of the fans to vote for the guys they don't want to see work the game. Unfortunately, let's start the campaign <laughs> right in votes for NHL officials. Let's see some of these. These guys could certainly participate in the fastest skater competition. There are some amazing skaters out there and plenty of former players at all levels, but we've we've had some amazing skaters in stripes. I always think of Von Rohde, who, who still runs a skating school. Uh, guy was smooth as anything on his skates, and I would have loved to have been able to throw him into the fastest skater competition. And we got we got some good wheels out there. Let's let's put the stripes in there. Let's see how they do. This is the Scouting the Rest podcast. Please make sure you're following us on our social channels to get Josh. You get him at Scouting the Refs on both X and Instagram, at Todd Lewis Sports for me on X and Instagram. On this week's episode, the hits just keep on coming. Stick work can be costly. Catch and release. There was no kick. And how about a little rule changes and adjustments? Oh, wait, one more. Does Nick Ritchie have anger issues? <laughs> Nick Ritchie has issues, yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. If, if you missed it, he was suspended from his uh, Swiss League game uh, for, for eight games, as a matter of fact, for, how shall we say, wailing on another player. Would that be a, a, a nice summary of it? I think that's an accurate depiction of what it was. You know, sometimes you'll get a guy who doesn't want to fight and... Sometimes you try, you drop the gloves, you try to goad them into doing it back, and and sometimes they want nothing to do with it, and you just unload. And he kept going, and the linesman came in to break it up, and he kept going. And man, that was it was hard to watch, and uh, deservedly so. Uh, lengthy suspension coming out of that one. We're just wrapping up the World Junior Championships as well, and there was a lot of talk and discussion throughout the tournament about the officials and calls and what should be a penalty, what shouldn't be a penalty. I guess maybe the one that got the most attention was the hit from Morgan Geeky on Samuel Schindler of the uh, German team. It was only seconds into the game. It, it was a hard hit. It wasn't targeting the head, but there was head contact. And that means he's done for the game. Yep. And that people need to remember, you know, this isn't NHL rulebook. It's not the AHL rulebook. It's not even any of the Hockey Canada or other rulebooks that some folks are used to seeing in North America. It's double IHF. And when we've got those rules, there are some distinct changes and differences, primarily around contact to the head. So any head contact is penalized. You know, the NHL, we always joke that they've got illegal check to the head as a rule because some checks to the head are legal. That's why they have to call it illegal checks to the head. Doesn't work that way in the double IHF. Stuff. And it's that head contact that required the call on this place. So you're not used to working from a certain rule. It, it does sometimes seem like they're being a little stricter, but that's the way the game's played internationally.
Yes, and you're right. We need to remember this when we're talking about the NHL rules and maybe some rules adjustments that, you know, well, maybe you should bring in more international rules. Well, you're going to probably see a lot more players spending less time on the ice if, if that's the case. We'll get to rule changes in a second, but we do want to get to punishments for stick work. And in particular, Ryan Hartman of the Minnesota Wild fined about $4,400 for his stick work on Winnipeg's Cole Perfetti. This uh, was sort of the end result, if you will, of a series of situations in back-to-back -back games between these two teams. Uh, let's deal with the, the, the high stick first. That is it deliberate? Was it deliberate? Some say yes, some say no. But unless they release the video of the mic'd up Cole Perfetti, I guess we'll never know. Oh, I know. I, I, look, I'm going to go with Perfetti here. When he says that Hartman told him that it was in response for what happened to Kaprizov. Why would he say that? Why, why would this all be a story? I know Hartman's backpedaling now and saying it wasn't intentional, but you even watch the play. I mean, there's, <laughs> I'm looking at, he's not even going for the stick no. there. It's really a stick to the chops. And I think that's the disappointing part is I, I understand retribution. I understand wanting to play a guy hard, play a team hard, send a message back the other way. But Gosh, we had some fights. We had the Kaprizov hit. We had one fight. In the next game, we had another fight. You can play these guys hard. You can go after them, not give them any space on the ice, keep it chippy. But when you have deliberate intent to injure type penalties, like a stick to the face on the faceoff, especially for a guy who had absolutely nothing to do with the initial play, I don't know, Todd. I, I, I have a problem with that. I have a large problem with that. And until we get rid of some of the eye for an eye justice, then I, I think it's going to continue to be a problem. And this is where I think the Department of Player Safety has to come down stronger on some of this retribution, especially in this case, as you mentioned, there were two subsequent fights to exact the revenge, if you will. And then you still get this nonsense. Yeah. And look, if we go back to the original play with Kaprizov getting injured, maybe it's a finable offense. Maybe it's a two minute penalty. Uh, when we see Dylan with the cross checks, they go back and forth. They were playing Kaprizov hard all game. I, I'll give them that. Those were not cross checks that shouldn't have been unpenalized, but they often are, uh, especially when we see guys going back and forth. And Kaprizov returned with a few pretty strong cross checks of his in there. So if I'm calling it tight, both guys are going off. If, if I'm not and they let them play because neither team's getting an advantage, well, you can't say it wasn't fair. The unfortunate outcome is that there was an injury on the play, but the fact that that cross check caused an injury doesn't automatically make it a more severe penalty and also automatically doesn't make it a suspendable offense. So man, I I'd love to not see Kaprizov injured. He's a talented guy. You want to see him on the ice. Fans want to see high scoring games and talent like that. But when it, borderline play or a play that's illegal but not egregious causes injury it, it, you can't treat it like it was an intent to injure type of situation and that goes for player safety and it goes for the response that we've seen here from minnesota you, you can't go headhunting and, and take guys out because of that i believe february 20th is the date the next yes. time those two teams meet by the way if you want to mark that in your uh circle it on the calendar, calendar. <laughs> yeah there you go okay so in a similar but different situation involving the florida panthers and the arizona coyotes uh, Florida's Nick Cousins clobbers Yuso Valimaki into the boards. He was in a bit of an awkward position when he sustained this hit. Uh, Jason Zucker sees this and decides he's going to exact his revenge on Nick Cousins by plastering him into the boards and into concussion protocol for the next while. Zucker has a hearing with the Department of Player Safety, gets himself a three-game suspension. There was no penalty on the plate for Cousins. 
apparently it wasn't a serious enough hit and the player or victim, if you prefer, changed positions. So that was the reason that no arm went up in the air for Cousins. I I, I don't know. Again, I, I could see Cousins being penalized, but that's a brutal, vicious hit from Zucker. Yeah, it is. And and it, this is, again, we get back into the retribution space here of you know, how do we stick up for guys when things happen and how do we trust the officials and player safety? Uh, the Valamecki hit, I think, was an unfortunate one. Is it worth a penalty? Is it worth a suspension? I'd say a penalty. I'd say a fine. Valamecki falls down as the hit is about to be delivered. So he's putting himself in a dangerous spot there. And that's part of the rule is, you know, does the player's body position change just prior to a concurrent with the hit? And it did. He, he ends up on his knees. He ends up putting his head in a very dangerous spot through no fault of his own, but that contributes to the head contact. That being said, and I'm going to use some player safety easier, Todd, the onus is on the player delivering the check to deliver a legal body check. And that means cousins needs to not drive through the head. I, I mean, it looks like he checks on him afterwards. He's obviously not in the play anymore. He's trying to look at Valamaki. So I think he realized that it wasn't the hit he wanted to deliver, but it was a dangerous play. I, I'm good with a minor penalty. I'm good with a fine on Cousins for that one, just reminding him that the onus is on him to deliver a clean hit, which is something Jason Zucker absolutely did not do. Not a clean hit at all. And uh, you know, I think this is one worthy of a suspension because you have a player who's not expecting to get hit at all. The puck is nowhere near a uh, dangerous play, dangerous play for both. But I look at the Valamaki as somewhat unintentional due to body position. And I look at the Zucker hit as 100% intentional. And uh, to use a, a phrase taken out of the NHL rule book, a, a totally blindside hit. Yes. And you mentioned that the, the onus is on the player to deliver a legal check or also to minimize the impact of, of causing a player to crash into the boards. I think that's a part that gets left out sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Minimize the contact, minimize the impact. You you want to show that you're re realizing, hey, maybe you can't stop completely, but you, you can't blow somebody up. You can't drive through them. And if you do, and you cause an injury, then obviously that, that factors in as well. Okay, let's get to some more lighthearted rule changes, or excuse me, some rule interpretations, if you will. Uh, Philadelphia Flyers, Seattle Kraken, Seattle forward Thomas Tatar is trying to do a teammate a solid by slowing down the puck as it enters the zone. Only problem is that Tatar is kind of dangling off the boards and sort of in the bench, and that's what makes this play illegal, but it kind of funny. Oh, it's what makes it great, too, because you, <laughs> you don't see this one every day. And yes, you're coming over the boards, you're about to join the play, but you can't play the puck until you're on the ice. Tatar's helping out here, stops the puck, sets him up, says, hey, here you go. All right, now I'm going to hop on and join the play. But that uh, is an interference call for playing the puck from the bench. You know, he can't really do too many men on the ice because his skates aren't on the ice when he plays it. So it's a, a clear interference call. It was the right call. <laughs> as, as amusing as it may have been at the time, or may, maybe maybe not amusing to the coach, but amusing to the rest of us to watch Tatar try to get a jump on the play and try to set a guy up. Yeah, it was good. Okay, so I, I believe you're familiar with the phrase, Josh, of distinct kicking motion. Oh, yeah. We had one of those in a goal involving the Hawks and Rangers and Chris Kreider in front of the Chicago net where he, well, should we say propels the puck into the net with his skate. Peter Morazic immediately jumps up and he's waving his arms. No way. That's no goal. Come on. He kicked it in. Referees Corey Savret, Kendrick Nicholson had a few looks and decided 
there was no distinct kicking motion and this goal counts or do you agree or disagree with this one josh i actually agree with the lack of a distinct kicking motion i mean you can see it going off his skates and uh, your your wording was correct todd he propels it in uh, it definitely goes off his skates that's what pushes him in but i think what it comes down to is in the nhl rule book rule 49.2 covers kicked in goals and we obviously all know the distinct kicking motion portion and I, I didn't see the swing of the foot i didn't see the extension where you see a soccer style kick but 49.2 subsection 4 is where things get interesting a goal will be allowed when a puck enters the goal after deflecting off an attacking player's skate or deflects off his skate while he is in the process of stopping and to me that's the part that applies here as well Kreider is obviously stopping i mean if he doesn't stop he's going full speed into the net there so you see him put on the brakes he's stopping he may very well know that he's going to contact the puck, but it's the stopping motion that propels the puck in. It's his momentum that propels the puck in. And there's not necessarily a kick as much as it is him putting on the brakes to not crash into the crossbar. So by rule, when you look at what the NHL has in there and, and the subsection there of 49, I thought it would be a good goal. That, that, doesn't mean that I was not surprised when it was pulled a good goal because I, I feel like I you still never know what's going on. But no, I, I didn't see a distinct kick. So I thought this one should stand. I think they got it right. So we had a goal. Not we, a good goal, a but goal. a goal. Right. Look, it, it was, I'd say a good one. Yeah, we'll, we'll call okay, it good. We'll, it was, we'll call it a good one. Let's go. Let's call it a good. A bad, oh. bad goal. If you're, if you're Chicago, maybe this was a bad one, but it yeah, was a right. goal nonetheless. Uh, we had some other interesting crease play in the Ottawa Senators and Vancouver Canucks game. Ottawa defenseman Jacob Bernard Docker. Well, he was uh, using all of his uh, attributes to prevent a goal. So he catches a pass that is sent flying over the net by Vancouver's Nils Hoglander, and he's hoping for a good bounce, or maybe he can play it on the other side. But Bernard Docker sees the puck coming, grabs it, and tosses it into the corner out of danger. So immediately some are saying that, well, shouldn't this be a penalty shot for closing your hand on the puck in the crease? That's where Bernard Docker was, but there's an exception here, John. There's there's a few things going on on this play. Uh, the first of which is where is the crease, right? We know Bernard Docker's in the blue paint, but the goal crease actually extends up four feet. It extends to crossbar height. And if you look where he's at when he gloves this, it does appear that the puck is above the crossbar. So from a, a rule interpretation point of view, this is not in the crease at the time which changes things considerably because now we're looking at just closing your hand on the puck or is he gloving the puck? Whether it's in or out of the crease, I'm looking at a play where he catches the puck out of the air and immediately knocks it down to the ice, which is legal. And that's what we want to see happen is, hey, you know, there's there's the puck there. You can catch it out of the air. You just have to place it or knock it down to the ice. You get a minor penalty if you catch it and skate with it, if you try to avoid an opponent, if you pick it up off the ice, those types of things. So the fact that it was more or less one motion here, I think saves him because he goes from left to right, drops it and continues play. So we're not in the crease and we're not actually grabbing the puck or moving around with it. So I think those two pieces are what made this to me, not a penalty for closing your hand on the puck in general, but especially not the penalty shot that would have been awarded if he had done it in the crease. Okay, this leads me to a thought and a question and interpretation of the rule book. So it's different, but similar. If a player contacts a goaltender 
who is standing up in the crease, but the upper part of their body is above the crossbar, would that excuse them from goalie interference? That is a great question. I would anticipate that while the definition of the crease extends upwards for feet, that sort of contact would happen at a point where it would still impact the goaltender's ability to do his job in the crease. So that's uh that's one that I think we'll we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure we've had it happen, Todd, on on plays where a goaltender's helmet was clipped by a stick and maybe it right. was above the four foot mark. And and for those purposes, the goaltender is determined to be in the crease. So they don't necessarily apply it that way. But when it comes to the puck, we're we're taking that four foot line and and calling the crease there. Just looking for a loophole. You never oh, know. Oh, always always looking for them. And it's it, you know, it's hard because it, there are so many different things. There's so many factors into interpreting what makes sense on this one and why was this called one way and not the other way if we go back to the Bruins game you can see a similar play here where he's gloving the puck in the crease and he's throwing it now he's in the crease but in this situation it you've got a puck that changes direction so he's not doing it in one motion it's not going from left to right he's using his hand to move the puck in a different spot so you can watch Weatherspoon here reaches out grabs the puck and then throws it it's the throw here that really results in the penalty. He's He's got a grab and a throw. Had he just batted it from left to right or in one direction, I think you wouldn't have seen the penalty that he picked up there. But you're right, Todd. You, it's the loopholes. It's the details. It's those fine points that make the difference and what makes things so frustrating when you're trying to apply the NHL rulebook because every situation is different. And just saying, well, why wasn't this one like that one? That They're rarely the same. Another one that I wanted to ask about uh, also involves the Ottawa Senators and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Sens defenseman Jacob Chikrin gets run into by a couple of Pittsburgh Penguins on the play, and he sustains a, a nasty cut on the nose. The referees convened and called a major penalty for high sticking because of the injury. That means you can review it and get a look at it. Turns out, though, that it was an elbow that cut Chikrin and not a high stick involved. So the penalty is rescinded and they did not call a penalty for elbowing. The pens got away with one here. I, I see this, this means all video review must be stopped immediately because it's not perfect. <laughs> that, that is a weird one. Um, and I'll, I'll say it's, it's interesting because the review rules around what you can and can't review give the officials a few different options and it's changed. Uh, they snuck in a, a minor change to us this year, which actually would have applied here. And it depends on what the initial call is. If they called uh, initially a double minor for high sticking, then that double minor can either be sustained via review or it has to be wiped out and say it's it's no penalty on the play. Those are your only options when you've got a double minor. If it was, in fact, a major, then the officials have a few more options. They can confirm the major, they can rescind the penalty altogether, or they can reduce the major to a lesser penalty. Now, when they first introduced this rule, it had to be a lesser penalty of the same infraction, which handcuffs the officials a little bit because not every not every penalty or infraction has the same types of calls. Some can only be a minor or a major. So they changed it for this season to allow it to be reduced to a lesser penalty. It doesn't specifically say the same infraction. Match penalties, they still have to be the same infraction, but a major doesn't appear they have that restriction. Hmm. However, when you have a double minor for high sticking, there's nowhere to go. You you can't change that one. You can't flip a double minor that was a high sticking penalty that caused injury to a minor for an elbow or a major for an elbow. It's it's very restrictive. And the way the book is written, 
that's that's the limitation that they want to place on these reviews. They want to defer to the officials on the ice and let them refine those calls. But probably one of those situations, Todd, one of those use cases or, or outliers where maybe we could have gotten the call right this time. And it, it looks mm. like we weren't we weren't able to because of the rules, not because of the officials. OK, interesting one. As we're getting into the start of award season with the Golden Globes coming up and, you know, Grammys and Oscars and everything, I want to give a, a recognition to Shane Gostisbehere in the Wings-Flyers game, who <laughs> Gostisbehere gets whistled for interference on Philadelphia's Cam Atkinson. And as he's being escorted to the penalty box, Gostisbehere goes to great lengths to interpret and demonstrate the diving ability of Atkinson. <laughs> and it also turns out that uh, referee Garrett Rank didn't like that because he rang him up for an extra two for unsportsmanlike. But I got to think we got to give him credit for his acting skills there. Uh, you know, just the fact that he went for it, uh, you know, committed to the act, committed to the dive. <laughs> not only was he frustrated, not only was he yapping, but he actually had to, you know, go full form, dive in. I, I, I like it. I think it was well done. I, I think, He's in consideration for potentially uh, best supporting penalized player. He's got my nod. I like that. I like that. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of rule changes as we we wrap things up here. Pierre Lebrun of The Athletic uh, had a start of the year call. I'm thinking of, you know, resolutions and rules and changes that he'd like to see. The PWHA, which began play on New Year's Day, has also enacted some rules changes. Some of them uh, Lebrun mentions, including... Um, a shorthanded goal nullifying a penalty, which I love. And I also think that players should serve the full two-minute minor penalties, no matter how many goals are scored. Now, you like the firm two minutes? Yeah. Just keep them in there the whole time, rack yep. up the goals? Hey, it, it makes penalties worth more. My only fear is you, you don't want to see officials hesitating to call penalties because they know that each penalty means a full two minutes instead of just at most one goal. But I think they're both good changes. I think these are the types of things that we see. Uh, both rules are in effect in the Champions League this year, so we got to see how those would play out. And we'll see what happens in the PWHL with the shorthanded goal killing the penalty. But I, I think it'll be interesting to see. Hasn't happened yet. We've had enough penalties called, but we have not yet had a PWHL shorthanded goal scored. So I think it'll be interesting interesting to see the strategy these teams take because obviously you're going to adapt your game to make that make sense to you. You're a penalized team. You want somebody even in your roster that might be a shorthanded threat because just, just think of the, the time you can get back. You're not killing penalties if you can score one down a man. I, I think it's a great idea. The other suggestion was more three on three overtime to help decide games, which got me thinking of a unique way to do this because the talk of course is always well you can't make games go you know 5 10 12 minutes longer 20 minutes longer whatever so here's my suggestion to get more 3 on 3 if a game is tied with 3 minutes remaining in the third period on the next whistle the game reverts to three-on-three three play. That way, you get an extended period of three-on-three. Three. Maybe a goal is scored, maybe it's decided, or it continues into overtime, but you get more three-on-three three play in this manner. Oh, that's that's an interesting one. You know, I'm happy to extend overtime, but instead of extending overtime past the current end, you're extending it into regulation. So you're going right. the other way with it, flipping it around a little bit. I, I like that idea. Just, again, it, it changes the strategy. It changes the approach. You know, Do you have teams jockeying for that five on five goal as they get near 
that three on three timer mark. I don't know. I, I think it's pretty interesting. I do like the idea of additional three on three before we go to the shootout. So if this is how we have to get there, then uh, I'm, I'm game. Let's give it a shot. All right. One more discussion about officiating before we uh, wrap up this edition of the Scouting the Rest podcast. Ian Mendez has a, a good piece in The Athletic as well about officials doing interviews. The NBA, the NFL have had some uh, interesting calls of late and they had officials speak to pool reporters. Uh, Ian Mendez has some really good comments from our pal Dave Jackson, who was on the podcast uh, a while back, uh, former ref, now rules analyst. And he delivered a very rational argument about whether or not it's a good idea and also the BS argument that the refs are not accountable because referees are accountable. If you want to do this, I, I guess it's okay that I just don't think it's going to resolve any issues. If you don't like the call, you're still going to be upset with the call and not happy. In fact, it might anger you even further. I think Dave nailed it in in his response and agree with him 100%. First of all, if you haven't read it already, go on The Athletic, read it. Great update, not only on, on some thoughts about it, but on understanding how referees are held accountable and the types of things that the league has in place that I think most fans aren't aware of. You don't see it, so you don't think it's there, but there, there is a lot that Dave mentioned. But I think he nailed the value of having officials do post games. It's not in opinions. It's not in judgment. Like you said, Todd, those things are going to be frustrating because every situation is different. You might not agree with what the official called, but you also don't know what they saw on the play. So it, it becomes a really tough gray area of saying, is this helping anybody? The place the officials can help, whether it's the refs working the game or even the officiating supervisor, is to get into those rule explanations. Like when we've got a guy who doesn't get a penalty for closing his hand on the puck in the goal crease and he bats it away. Explain to us, hey, here's why it didn't result in a penalty. This is the goal crease. This is the rule. Give us those factual explanations and let fans, let the players, let the broadcasters understand why the call went that way. Not an opinion one, not, well, why wasn't this a hook? Why wasn't this this penalty? Why did you call this here? But an actual explanation, much like player safety gives when they hand out a suspension, but just throw us the rule book, throw us the facts of this is what the call was based on and make it an educational thing. And from that standpoint, I think there's a ton of value to it. But if you're looking for a guy to sit there and you want to grill him over what happened in the game, and we recently saw it in the NFL level of what happens when a call didn't appear to follow the rule book and nobody's happy, but explaining the rules and giving everybody a better understanding that that could actually make a difference. Or they could just reply and say, well, I gave 110% and that's the best I got. Good stuff, man. Way to work. Get in the box. It's the Scouting the Refs podcast. Read more at scoutingtherefs.com. Follow Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Email the show at ref at scoutingtherefs.com. Subscribe, share, and keep those sticks down. That's good play.